Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. We want to welcome you to week number two of our study of the Book of Daniel. And what I'd like to do this morning, or this evening, or whatever it is, uh, is to kind of bring us up to speed. Uh, Let's review a little bit and jump back into chapter 2 where we had left off, which I think is central to our understanding of the entirety of the book of Daniel. And what we want to do at the second part of class tonight, in fact, is to bring this whole study home to the New Testament. And we're going to really be able to get deep into that as well. Let me open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given to us, and we ask now that we would be faithful stewards of your word, understanding it, getting wisdom and discernment and insight. Make yourself known, as you've done through the prophet Daniel, to ourselves. Expose us, teach us, guide us, lead us. Be the sovereign God uh, that you are in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we discussed last week in our introduction to the book of Daniel that the book of Daniel is not a book, as many people think, that's about Daniel and his three friends. Instead, the book of Daniel is about God. Um, It's who God is and how God acts. And we saw that a little bit last week in chapter 1, noting uh, verse 9, for example, now God granted Daniel. Verse 2 of chapter 1, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, And in verse 17 of chapter 1, And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence. So it's about God and his sovereignty. And if we remember, what we discussed was the book of Daniel is written to an Israelite people that have been taken into exile. They've been been transported and moved from the land of of Judah, uh, now off to the land of Babylon. And in Babylon, they're in exile. Well, the problem with that now becomes, in the ancient world, that if our, God, if our nation conquers your nation, then our God must be better than your God. And for the Israelite people living in Babylon, that means something simple. Yahweh is inferior to the gods of Babylon. Bel, Marduk, and all the other gods. And so Daniel is being reminded, and is therefore reminding the people of Israel, that Yahweh is actually in control. That it's God who's brought the Babylonians in, who has caused the Babylonians to to pronounce judgment upon the people of Israel, and it's God who's in control of all things. And we're going to see this more and more as we go through chapters 2, and even through 3, 4, 5, and 6 especially. That it's Yahweh who's still in charge. And thus the Israelite people are reminded that God is still faithful, and will be faithful to his promises to Abraham, that he will provide them a means of restoration from this exile, and all the like as well. Secondly, what we discussed last week was the um, arrangement of the book of Daniel, namely that Daniel's broken up into two halves. 
Um, what we commonly like to look at the book of Daniel is to make a big separation barrier between chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 12. But what we discussed last week was that's not easily done. After all, we found out that, that Daniel chapters 1 through 6, uh, well, in the middle of chapter 2, all of a sudden the text turns from Hebrew to Aramaic. In chapter 2, verse 4, it's Aramaic, and it's Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. And the first thing that that does is it tells us that chapter 7, still being in Aramaic, has to be related in some way to chapters 1 through 6. You see, we like to look at Daniel as, oh, 1 through 6 are these stories about Daniel and his friends, and that chapter 7 through 12 are these wild apocalyptic visions, and we think of them as separate entities. And the Aramaic context of chapters 2 through 7 tells us not so fast here. We need to realize that, that chapter 7 is related to chapters 2 uh, through 6 as well. Furthermore, we looked at the structure. And if you have your handouts, we'll notice here on page 2, uh, under capital B, it says that chapters 2 through 7 are arranged chiastically. Now, a chiasm is one of those things, if, if we look at it here, where, where you have like an A and then a B and then a C, and maybe even a D, and then the story goes back to C, B, and A. What that means is, that A and A are related. The story begins and ends. Maybe, you know, maybe it's you know, Tom and Mary were happily married. And the story ends with Tom and Mary were happily married. And then you have B and B. So the next thing that happens is you know, Tom loses his job and his wife becomes ill. But then at the end of the story, it's Tom gets his job back and his wife gets all better. So B and B are related. C and C are also going to be related. And then D uh, might be the center point of this chiasm. Now, Again, we have to be really, really careful with chiasms. Um, be, you know, danger, danger. I really hesitate to tell people, oh, by the way, the Bible has chiasms in it. But the one place that we know that it has chiasms is in the prophets. The prophets love to use this way of telling a story. And in fact, Daniel definitely does this. Um, and he probably does it more complexly than I'm going to present to you tonight, but that's okay. We'll leave it at this. And what we want to notice is this. Chapters 2 and 7 are what we would call the A and the A, part of the chiasm. Three and six are the B and the B, and four and five are the C and the C. So the chiasm in Daniel, the one we're looking at at this point in time, has chapters two and seven are related, three and six are related, and four and five are are related. Now, how are they related? Well, real simple. Chapters two and seven both contain dreams that have four kingdoms, where the destruction of the fourth kingdom results in the coming of the divine kingdom. So they're they're both related, even though chapter 7 is apocalyptic vision, and chapter 2 is just this dream of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interprets, we're going to notice that they're greatly paralleled. Chapters 3 and 6, then, are also paralleled, in which these heroes of God, excuse me, Daniel and his his three friends, are both saved um, by God. So in chapter 3, uh, 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 the, uh, the Daniel and his three friends, I'm uh, sorry, Daniel's three friends then are thrown into the uh, fiery furnace, but they're rescued by God. And in chapter 6, Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, and he's rescued by God. And then chapters 4 and 5 both describe rebellious foreign kings who are confronted with God, both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. One repents, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, and one fails to repent, Belshazzar in chapter 5. So, 
Four and five are about foreign kings. Three and six are about Daniel and his friends being delivered by God. Two and seven are about four kingdoms that are replaced by the divine kingdom. Now, what that tells us then is chapters two and seven are intimately related to one another. Not just by the Hebrew, but by the content. And what that means then is the visions of chapters seven through twelve cannot be separated from chapters one through six. And the significance for our sake tonight now is that if, as I said last week, if you want to understand the nature of chapter 7 in this wild apocalyptic vision with all these weird creatures, the answer is we should have a pretty good feel of what chapter 7 is about by the time we're done with chapter 2 tonight. Because chapter 2 is going to be fairly straightforward. It's, it's relatively easy for us to understand what's going on there as well. All right, as so we make our way then into chapter 2, and again, actually in chapter 1 we, we noted... Uh, that we have this incredibly d- deep issue that we weren't able to get into d- any discussion on, uh, but one that's worth uh, your pondering on, and that is, uh, how do we live as the people of God in the midst of a pagan nation? And Daniel, what's interesting is, Daniel was confronted with being taught all the ways of the, of the Chaldeans, the literature of the Chaldeans, the language of the Chaldeans, including how to interpret magical and, and dreams and incantations and the like. And Daniel doesn't object. But when they brought food to him, he objected. He said, hey, how about if I eat vegetables only? Now, we noted last week, this is not a Jew saying, oh, I can only eat kosher. And that's where Daniel Daniel drew the line. As we mentioned last week, first off, there's no direct indication that this food was kosher or non-kosher. The Old Testament food loss doesn't require a vegetarian diet that Daniel requested. Um, Furthermore, the Jewish teaching throughout the years is, is pretty emphatic. You can't be kosher in a pagan land. So why did Daniel choose to to draw that battle? Why did he choose to draw the battle of food and not the battle of the literature and language and the teachings and all this other stuff as well? So something interesting that is worth pondering over more, and maybe we'll do that during our week 9 session um, as well. But as far as chapter 2 goes, now what we recall in chapter 2 now is this. The king has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And we're going to find two themes that are going to dominate this particular chapter, and, and even chapters 1 through 6. First off, the Jews are invited to compromise their ancestral religion, and they refuse to do so. All right? And there's pagan pressure for Jews to compromise their religion, but it must be resisted. All right? Secondly, Daniel is going to have superior wisdom, and that's going to be demonstrated through these visions and the things that occur. All right? And most notably now in chapter 2, we're going to see that second theme coming up to a surface here. Daniel is going to have superior wisdom. So the king has this dream, and the way he does it, he says, okay, to all the sorcerers and and, uh, um, uh, 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 interpreters of the visions, I want you to tell me what the dream is, and I want you to tell me its interpretation. Now, the problem is this. That's not the rules. And the rules were very clear. The king was supposed to tell the magicians and conjurers and sorcerers and Chaldeans, all this in verses 4 and following, he was supposed to tell them the dream. And then Nebuchadnezzar, and then they would tell him the interpretation of the dream. And they would, it was real simple. They looked it up in the books. The book said, if you saw this and this and this, then this is what it means. But Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I'm, I'm worried that you're going to pull one over my eyes. You see, verse 3, it says, uh, the king had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. He really wants to make sure he knows exactly what this, this dream is all about. He, he knows it's important. He knows there's something significant to this dream. And he's afraid that they're just going to say, oh, this is what it means. 
and they're not really going to have any special insight. So he says, okay, the way I know you're going to have special insight is if you can tell me both what the dream was and its interpretation. Then I know you're not fooling me. Now the Chaldeans respond in verse uh, 10, and again I'm reading from the New American Standard, and it says, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. And of course, we all know, and Daniel's readers all know, ah, what do you mean there's no man on earth? Daniel can do it, Daniel can do it. Verse 11, it says, Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And Daniel and his readers are going, ah, Yahweh can do it. Yahweh can do it. So, it's fairly clear what's going on. Now, because the Chaldeans and, and magicians and all the like could not uh, uh, do this, then the king ordered that they all be slain. No, no one comes forward. Now, apparently, no one asked Daniel. They simply brought forward a number of these leading Chaldeans and magicians and sorcerers and con- conjurers and said, hey, what's the dream? And no, no one could come forward. So they go off to kill them all. And let's pick up the story where we left off last week here. Verse 14. Daniel replied with, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he said, um, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. So Daniel is given this wisdom and discretion and discernment, verse 14, to, hey, Arioch, uh, can I ask why I'm about to die? Once he realizes, oh, well, great. Then he goes to the king, hey, can I have some time to figure this one out? So Daniel, verse 17, he went to his house and he informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah, about the matter in order that, the, that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And here's what Daniel does. Daniel prays. In Daniel's prayer, in verses 19 through 23, really verses 20 through 23, form kind of the center of this particular chapter uh, of the book of Daniel as well. And it says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the night vision. Daniel blessed the God of heaven, And Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him, and it's he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thee thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power, even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. And again, this, this prayer of Daniel reminds us of these central themes of the book of Daniel. Namely, it's that God is the God of all creation. Verse 21, he removes the kings. He establishes kingdoms. Verse 22, he reveals the profound and hidden things. Right, and thus, verse 23, To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thee praise, for you have given me wisdom and power, and has made known to me what we requested. So Daniel gets his, his answer. God hears his prayer, and Daniel now is going to go before the king and say, Okay, king, here's the deal. Here's your, here's your, um, 
here's your answer. Now, what's interesting is in verse 24, it says, Then therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and he spoke to him as follows. And he said, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I'll declare the interpretation of the king. Now, I find that interesting. You see, Daniel doesn't have to defend these pagan magicians. I mean, they're going to die because they couldn't reveal it. Daniel, he, it makes sense that he's concerned about himself and his three friends. And the answer is, okay, king, here's the deal. You know, I can tell you what the dream is. But instead, Daniel says, all right, first off, don't kill these guys. And secondly, let me tell you what the dream was. So he's standing up for pagan sorcerers, magicians, etc. Now, as we go forward then, with the interpretation of the dream, we're going to notice, of course, that uh, the significance of it is that the mystery is not in the details of the dream, but in the fact that it's God who reveals the dream, and it's God who controls all of history. Again, keep that thought in mind. It's God is controlling all these things. All right, now let's go forward. Here we go. To the dream itself. Verse 27, Daniel said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men nor court conjurers, magicians nor diviners are able to declare to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream, and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn, to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But, as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So here we go. The vision itself, verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, and its breast and arms of silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And it, um, Verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hand. That's going to be an extremely important phrase that we're going to note as we go forward here. A stone was cut without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. And they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. Now note that, threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And again, note that as well. It became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. So the first thing we want to look at is what is this image, this statue that Nebuchadnezzar has seen in this dream that Daniel's telling him about? And what do the parts of the statue mean? And then the second thing we want to look at is, what does it mean that this stone, what is this stone cut without hands? What does it mean that it became a great mountain and that it filled all of the earth? Well, first off, we'll note now, and we'll again go into great detail on this when we get to chapter 7, 
that there's going to be great parallel between this great statue and the four beasts of chapter 7 and 8. Right? After all, we're told, as we look through the interpretation of this dream, that the statue represents four kingdoms. All right, so let's go to verse 36. This was the dream. Now, we shall tell its interpretation before the king. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has, has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the air, or the sky, has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Verse 39. And after, there, and after you will there arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another king, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over you. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw that the feet and toes, partly the potter's clay and partly the iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will, will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But itself will endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. And in that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to you the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. So we see these two parts now. First is, there's this statue that seems, according to Daniel's interpretation, to have been broken down into four kingdoms. This fourth kingdom will be a divided kingdom and will have all kinds of interesting things happen to it. And then secondly, there's this focus on this great statue, this great stone that establishes a kingdom of its own. So the first point is the comparison between chapters 2 and chapter 7. In chapter 7, which we'll discuss in detail later, it was without question that there were four beasts that oppose the kingdoms of God. And here we have the statue that represents four distinct kingdoms. So there's this great parallel between chapters 2 and chapter 7 as well. Now, at the next thing that, of course, what most of us attempt to do immediately is, we start to say, okay, well, you know, what do these four parts of this kingdom mean? And does it mean this, or does it mean this, or does it mean this, etc.? And I don't want us to do that. But I want us to stop and say, let's look at this beast, let's look at this, uh, excuse me, the statue here, um, in light of what Daniel is told, telling us at this point in time, without worrying about all the details of the interpretation its application over history. First off, I want us to notice that this first king, excuse me, the first part of the uh, statue, represents Nebuchadnezzar himself. And of course, as Daniel reads this to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is like, oh, great, I'm, I'm the head of gold. You are the head of gold. What we notice about the four different parts of the statue, by the way, they're in diminishing value. So that it starts off with a head of gold, but then it arises another kingdom, verse 39, that's inferior, and then a third kingdom of bronze. And see, it's, it's becoming less and less valuable in terms of the, the items uh, that this statue is made out of. So the first one then is Nebuchadnezzar. You are this head of gold. But then we're told that the other kingdoms themselves are themselves actual kingdoms and not necessarily kings. So we have Nebuchadnezzar, which maybe just represents the kingdom of Babylon. 
And then the other three all represent various kingdoms. What I want us also notice is the second and third kingdoms are referenced very briefly. Verse 39. There'll be another kingdom inferior to you and then another, a third kingdom. So there's a longer description of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, a very brief description of the second and third kingdoms. And then this fourth kingdom has, well, you know, four verses, verses 40 through 43, and an extensive description. And that fits also with chapter 7, because in chapter 7, we have these four beasts, but the fourth beast is the one that gets the greatest description. And it has this one horn that comes out of the ten horns, and it's more terrifying, and we're going to realize, oh, this fourth beast is really the focal point of it all. As far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, he's happy to know that he's the head of gold, and that there's other kingdoms after him, and he's all good to go. In fact, verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, chapter 2, and he did homage to Daniel, and he gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant uh, incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you've been able to reveal this to this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration in the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Now, what we, what's interesting about this is, what do we do with this? You know, do we, is Nebuchadnezzar repenting? I mean, is, he, is, this, is this a confession in Daniel and Daniel's uh, God? And it's hard to know. First off, we'll notice that he, he fell to his face and did homage to Daniel in verse 46, which is a little bit uh, intriguing all by itself. Secondly, in verse 47, he says, Your God is the God of gods and a Lord of kings. That's something that any pagan king can say. You know, this, this is not a problem for a polytheistic king to say, Well, yours is like the God of gods. And then, you know, tomorrow he turns around and starts worshiping his gods again. So it's, it's difficult to know, and I don't know that the text really leads us any way whatsoever to answer whether Nebuchadnezzar himself becomes uh, um, a, a believer, a follower of, uh, of Yahweh, whatever you might want to call it as well. Let's go back now and look at some aspects of this particular vision in some more detail as well. First off, I want us to notice that um, the, the focusing specifically on the stone, and again, I don't want to address the question of who are these four kings, or what are these four kingdoms. We, we might address that when we get to chapter 7, but more likely we'll start to address that as we get to chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12. So if we really can keep that aside for now. What I want us to focus on is the second part of this particular vision in terms of the stone that was cut without hands. Okay, so as we move now to the second part of our understanding of chapter 2, what I want us to look at specifically now is what is the stone that was cut without human hands and this kingdom that is established, verses 44 through 45, that will never be destroyed, both in the context of Daniel and then let's especially leap ourselves into the New Testament. But the first thing I want us to note is this, and we discussed this, I believe, in week number one, and that was that when we often try to look for the interpretation of these visions, what we tend to do is we tend to look into the future and go, oh, you know, what was Daniel looking at in, in regard to the future? But what we really need to do is go, what was Daniel thinking of in regards to the past? Right? And I say that for a couple of reasons. First off, as we notice that this statue became, uh, this stone, verse uh, 35, became a great mountain and it filled 
the earth. It became a great mountain and it filled the earth. Now, I don't think this reference is on your particular handout. What I want you to notice is Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, just a couple chapters earlier before Daniel chapter 2. Ezekiel is just to the left of Daniel, basically. Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14. And it says this, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and the sockets was in you on the day you were created, there you were placed. You were anointed with the, um, you were, you were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there, you were on the holy mountain. You walked in the midst of the stones. Down in verse 16, in the middle of the verse. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. All right? And what we notice then is, according to Ezekiel 28, verses 13, 14, and 16, is that the Garden of Eden was a mountain. All right? In fact, as we look through the Old Testament, we're going to find that every temple in the Old Testament associated with the people of God, the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon, we're always on a mountain. So, in fact, mountain and temple are closely associated. Let's turn now to Isaiah chapter 2. Mountain and temple were closely associated. Isaiah chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 2 and 3. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from uh, Jerusalem. So here we go. The mountain of the house of the Lord. House of the Lord is the temple. And in the last days, what's going to happen? This mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of all the mountains. But this is also found for us in, in Exodus chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. Exodus chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. All right, verses 17 and 18. Thou will bring them and plant them in the mountain of of thine inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. This is Moses and the song of Moses after the Israelites have been brought out of the, uh, of the Red Sea and out of Egypt carefully, uh, safely. Moses says, you will bring them and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place where you have made your dwelling. So the first point then is, that the stone in, in um, Daniel chapter 2 that becomes a great mountain, well, it has this language of, well, of Eden. It's not this language of the future per se, though of course indeed it is. It, it's first off deriving its imagery from the past, namely from the Garden of Eden and from the imagery of a temple throughout uh, the Old Testament. That's why I pointed out to you in verse... 35, it says, of, um, back to Daniel chapter 2 now, in verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff 
from the summer threshing floors. Well, what's a threshing floor have to do with anything? Well, the, th- the temple of David, which of course Solomon built, was built on the threshing floor of Ornan. So if you look in 1 Chronicles 24 or 1 Chronicles 21, you're going to see the references to this threshing floor. 1 Chronicles 24, verses 16 through 24, and then in 1 Chronicles 21, verses 15 through 28, this repeated reference to the threshing floor, the threshing floor, the threshing floor, because that's where the temple was built. So we realize, oh, we've got this temple imagery and this great mountain, and then in verse uh, 35, now it says the stone became a great mountain, that's temple imagery, and it filled the whole earth. Well, filling the whole earth, of course, goes back to God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden was to fill the whole earth. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and over... Excuse me, every living thing that moves on the earth. So we also notice now, guess what? We've got this garden imagery of, of the Garden of Eden. After all, Eden was on a mountain, and it was a sanctuary. And what, ma- what made Eden a sanctuary? Exactly. What made Eden a sanctuary or a temple is, it was the place of God's presence. What was the goal for Eden, however? What we want to note is, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth happens in chapter 1, and Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden because of sin in chapter 3. The point then is, as Adam and Eve were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth, the garden of Eden would also multiply and fill the earth. And was Eden was supposed to take over the entire creation. So when we go to the stone that becomes this great kingdom in Daniel chapter 2, one of the things that we're going to notice about it is, well, first off, it's, it's being depicted or described in language that's fitting Eden and the language that's fitting the temple throughout the Old Testament. And furthermore, it fills the earth, accomplishing exactly what Eden was supposed to do, namely the filling of the earth. All right, so that's the first point. Secondly, the stone itself is very likely then, the stone, the foundation stone, for the temple. The stone itself was the foundation stone for the temple. So what I want you to do now is to go to that supplemental section of notes that I provided for you uh, on the temple itself. uh, and uh, I'm sorry, on the New Testament fulfillment. So we're looking at the outline, the the New Testament fulfillment. All right, let me bring it up here. So the first point I have uh, on this is that the end times stone image is also a temple. The end times stone image of Daniel chapter 2 is also a temple. After all, they're both are not made by human hands. And let's go now. So the first thing is they're not made by human hands uh, in verse 34 as well as verse 45. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut with, uh, uh, out of the mountain without human hands. 
Now, without human hands means divine in origin. So if something is without hum- made without human hands, it means God made it. And so let's turn now to the New Testament. And there in the New Testament, we'll turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 55 through 64. Let's see if we're going to read all those or not. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 55 through 64. All right, and this is Jesus at trial before the, uh, Caiaphas uh, uh, and, and the Jews. All right, verse 55. It said, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, uh, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And they stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say that I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another one made without hands. So here we go. The temple itself is going to be not made without hands, or it's going to be made without human hands. That's a reference to Daniel, referencing this end times temple itself. But the testimony wasn't consistent. Verse 59, verse 60, the high priest stood up before Jesus and said, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are saying against you? And he kept silent, and Jesus made no answer. And again the high priest was questioning him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said to them, I am, or the Greek says, you said it yourself, however we want to translate that. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now what I want us to notice about verse 62 is, Jesus is quoting the book of Daniel. And he's quoting Daniel chapter 7. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And we'll look at this in Daniel chapter 7, but remember... We already, talk, we already argue that Daniel chapters 2 and Daniel 7 are intimately related. They're both connected by the Aramaic of chapters 2 through 7, and they're both connected because they're a dream or a vision of four kingdoms that's replaced by God's kingdom or the divine kingdom. So the question is, are you going to build a temple made without hands, Daniel chapter 2, and Jesus is in, and then the high priest says, are you the, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, all right, fine. Indeed, you'll see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, quoting Daniel chapter 7. So this imagery of a temple not made with human hands. In fact, let's look at a few of the other references here. We're going to skip the Matthew 26 reference, and we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right. And here we go. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, We know that if the earthly tent which is our house is, uh, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now let's go back to the end of, Daniel, of 2 Corinthians 4 for a second here. What are our, verse uh, uh, 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Then chapter 5, we have this house, a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Let's go back even further, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is liberty. 
But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as in a mirror, uh, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. You see, the word glory here conveys the glory of God that filled his temple, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. So we are beginning to see the glory of the Lord, verses chapter 3, verse 18. Right? Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, well, the outer man is decaying, but it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And then chapter 5, verse 1, we have a temple. or We are being made into a temple, not made with human hands. And then if we skip down to chapter 5 now, verse 5, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. And the Spirit himself, since the Spirit is God, if the Spirit dwells in us, then the answer is, we're already being made into a temple. We already are a temple. Right, let's go now to, chapter, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Skip down to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered to the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let me skip down some more. Verse 23. Therefore, 23. It was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now that is extremely important for what we're trying to point out. First off, we notice the reference to the thing not made with human hands is the temple. Verses 11 and 24 explicitly identify the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. But what I want us to notice that verse 24 says is the temple that Jesus entered, which is not the earthly temple, is the true one. Verse 24 again of Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. That is, the earthly temple is only a copy of, of the true temple. The true temple is that which is made without hands. And that's the one that Jesus entered. So we begin to see now, oh, wait a second here. This temple itself is, this, this stone is therefore associated, the point is, the stone is associated with this temple not made with human hands. All right, we'll look at two more references. Acts chapter 7, which I wish we had plenty more time to delve into deeply. And maybe in upcoming weeks as we talk about idolatry, we'll go into Acts chapter 7 if we can. But Acts chapter 7, verse 48, uh, it says, verse, let me start in verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hands which made all these things? God does not dwell 
in buildings made by human hands. All right, the next thing I want us to notice is that this idea of stone in the New Testament, because the this, this stone that the builders rejected, the stone that destroys this image uh, of, um, uh, of Daniel chapter 2, is used throughout the New Testament to refer to Christ. Right? It's, refer, it's used throughout the New Testament to refer to Christ. And let's begin by looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. And it says, But he looked at them and he said, What is this? What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter like dust. On whomever it falls, it will scatter like dust. Now let's turn now to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 and 44. And Jesus said, Have you not read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from them, from the Lord, and it's marvelous in their eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. He who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now we want to build on these two things, uh, these two passages, but let's go now to Mark chapter 12. And in both instances, Jesus is given this imagery or this citation of Daniel, uh, of Psalm, Psalm 118 specifically. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But in Mark's gospel... Uh, actually in all three Gospels, it comes at the end of a parable. What I want us to notice is that in Mark's Gospel, there are only two parables. And because there are only two parables, these two parables are extremely significant. First off, in Mark chapter 12, we have the parable of the vine growers. And let's read this parable. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. He began to speak to them in parables, saying, A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it. And he dug a vat under the wine press, and he built a tower, and he rented it out to the vine growers, and he went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and and killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he'll give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so uh, they left him and went away. In all three instances of these Gospels now, this, pa- this passage from Psalm 118 is cited. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
And in each instance, it comes, the citation of Psalm 118 comes at the end of this parable about the vineyard. So now we've got to go a little bit deeper here. Let's go to Psalm 118 for a second. All right, and let's see its relationship. Now, we, we notice already that there's a relationship between this reference to a stone. What I want us to do is to be able to draw a direct parallel between the stone in Daniel chapter 2 that becomes a great kingdom and the stone of Psalm 118 and therefore the stone of the parable of Jesus uh, and the parable of the vineyard. So verse, uh, Psalm 118, verse 22, it's the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the question is, what is the stone? And the point I want to make is, the stone in Psalm 118 is the beginning of a temple. That becomes clear when we look at Psalm 118 in, in its totality, but for us right now, let us notice verse 19 of Psalm 118. He says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. Verse 20. Right? The point then is what? These gates in Psalm 118, verses 19 and 20, are the gates to the temple. Thus, the stone in Psalm 118, verse 22, is the beginning of the construction of the temple. That what we might call the end times temple. This is the Lord's doing, verse 23, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So the stone the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone in Psalm 118, is the stone for the construction of a temple. Now, however, in Mark chapter 12, this particular parable, it seems to be a little bit disconnected from the stone of Daniel chapter 2. But what I want us to notice is it's that it's intimately connected to the stone of Daniel chapter 2. And here's how it is. First off, we have in Daniel chapter 2 a stone, but now we have to go one more place, and that is Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we have this imagery of a vineyard. And it's this vineyard that God plants. And God plants this vineyard. And verse 1. Now, now uh, sing the song. I'm sorry, excuse me. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So notice it's on a mountain or a hill. And he dug it around it and he removed its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it, and they expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and, I will, and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will become trampled ground, and I'll lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I'll charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord is the, of, of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For right, righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress." Right, now, we're going to have to go a little bit deep here on us for a few minutes, if, if it's okay. We go back to Mark chapter 12, and we realize that this parable in Mark chapter 12 
is in the context of Jesus' proclamation of judgment upon the people of Israel. And it, 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 it's full of this imagery of this vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah 5, God looked for justice and he found none. He found no justice. So what happened? Well, the vineyard was destroyed. And in Mark chapter 12, we have this parable of a vineyard where God has sent his messenger to the vine dressers, expecting them to, to give him his, his, his due. Right? And instead, they treated them harshly, the servants or themselves or the prophets. And the reality then was, the, the owner of the vineyard then sent his son, which we know is Jesus, and they killed the son. And Jesus then quotes, verse 10, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. So what I want us to see here is, we have a stone imagery, we have a vineyard imagery in Isaiah 5, and in the stone in Daniel 2, and they're brought, being brought together by Jesus in Mark chapter 12 in this particular parable. And they're being brought together because we have a parable of a vineyard, but then he, at the end of the parable, he quotes Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is about a stone the builders rejected. So a vineyard and a stone, and now a stone, and the vineyard and stone are being brought together in this particular parable. Does that make sense? This parable is about a vineyard, and Jesus concludes the judgment on Israel and on the people for rejecting him by saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What we realize then is Isaiah 5 was the imagery of a temple as well. The stone in Daniel 2 is the imagery of a temple as well. And Jesus' words now are what? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Let's go to John chapter 2 now to bring this particular point home. John chapter 2, you see, the charge that the, that the authorities had against Jesus was, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, he'll raise up a temple made without hands. What I want us to note, of course, is Jesus never said that he would destroy it. But that's the accusation. He said, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise up another one not made by human hands. Jesus, however, says in John chapter 2, verse 19. Let me go back to verse 18. The Jews said, well, what sign do you show to us that you have authority to do these things? And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it in three days. Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture, uh, the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So Jesus has said that he will raise it up in three days. They are accusing Jesus as saying that he would destroy it. And that he will then raise up another one, not made with human hands, in three days. What we realize is, is happening is, Jesus has said that he will raise up a new temple. He never said he would destroy it. He simply simply noted, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise up another one. So we bring all this together now uh, uh, to, to a culmination. What's going on? Well, the temple that Jesus was referring to was the temple of Daniel chapter 2, in the temple of Daniel chapter 7. We know that because at the end of the Gospels, when they accused Jesus, right, going back to Mark chapter 14, which we looked at earlier, verses 54, 55 through 64, when they accused Jesus of the saying he would destroy this temple and in three days raise it up, 
Jesus, they then ask him, are you the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7? And he says, yes, I am. Right? He quotes Daniel chapter 7. And he notes that uh, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, which is a quote from Daniel chapter 7. So, verse 58 of, of Mark 14, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. And the point then is, the prophecy of Daniel 2 is about Jesus. The prophecy of Daniel 2 is about Jesus. About Jesus coming and destroying the kingdoms of this world. Now this thought, we're going to have to elaborate on a lot more, and give a lot more detail to it, when we get to Daniel chapter uh, 7, and we'll go into more detail on this. So let's see if we can lay a little little bit of a foundation. Excuse me. The point then is, the stone in Daniel chapter 2 has the imagery of the Garden of Eden. It has imagery from the Garden of Eden. That imagery is the imagery of uh, a temple and a temple that will fill the earth. It's that of a, um, of a great mountain, which is Eden, and it filling the earth, which is Eden. Right? But at the same time, stone is a temple, right? which we see that in relationship to Eden, and we see that in relationship to Jesus. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And a temple not made with human hands, so the Jews understood the temple, that the stone was actually that of a temple, and that they were looking for it in the future, in the end times, this temple made without human hands <clears throat> um, as well. And furthermore, it comes at the defeat of all of the nations. It comes at the defeat of all the nations. The stone, it says in Daniel chapter 2, destroys the kingdoms of this world. Verse 44, And in those days of the king, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another, and it will crush and put to an end all the kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So the question becomes, well, well, when does this happen? And the answer is, it's already begun. It's already happened because Jesus himself was risen from the dead on the third day. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The temple he was speaking of was his body. His body is what? The stone the builders rejected. The stone the builders rejected is, however, a temple. And it's, in fact, the first building block of the ancient temple. And so Jesus was referring to the building of himself. And, in fact, I think if we were to go much further than this, we'd say he's referring to the building of the end times temple, which is his church. And if we were to go further in this, we would just simply note Ephesians 2 and elsewhere. Well, we already referenced 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, where Paul references our earthly dwelling being replaced by a dwelling not made with human hands. So the stone the builders rejected then is Christ himself. His death and his resurrection was the rejection of that stone by the the people of the day. His resurrection, however, was the establishing of his kingdom and the defeating of the kingdoms of this world, and his establishing of the church then, becomes the next phase in the fulfillment of this all. Now, don't misunderstand. I do believe that there will be a climactic event at the return of Christ, where the the temple itself comes down to the earth. And that's Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. 
In Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, what do we see? We see the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven to the earth. Let's turn there for a moment. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. It says, um, verse uh, verse 10 of Revelation 21, He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So what we see in this image of Revelation 21 and 22 is this great city that comes down to the mountain, to a mountaintop, to the new earth. But as we look at it carefully, what we notice is this city is described in language that's fitting of the Holy of Holies. Not just a temple, in other words. It's actually fitting of the Holy of Holies. So if you look at this particular chart here, and you see the description of the ancient temple. What we notice is, the ancient temple had two parts. The holy place and and the holy of holies. Now the holy place had the dimensions of two to one. It was two times as long as it was wide. But the holy of holies, as you can see here, the length, width, and height of the holy of holies was identical. Meaning it's a cube. It's the same length, same width, and same height. As we look at the city of the New Jerusalem that comes down of heaven to this great mountain, we notice that its length, width, and height were equal. Verse 16. The city is laid out as a square. Revelation 21, verse 16. And its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length, width, and height are equal. So the next thing we realize is the New Jerusalem is described not in terms of an entire city, but as a city that is itself the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence. As we continue on, it says in verse 22 of Revelation 21, And I saw no temple in it. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You see, the Holy of Holies is the actual dwelling place of God. And the New Jerusalem is the dwelling place of the Lamb and of God. Therefore, it's a temple. As we go on to chapter 22 now, it says, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. They shall no longer have any need uh, of, uh, uh, of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, I'll pick this up again next week, but let me conclude here with, the, with this point, and I'll, I'll, I'll maybe refresh ourselves next week as we go over this. Notice the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22 is the same description as in Eden the Garden of Eden, right? There's the Tree of Life in this New Jerusalem. There's the River of Life in in this New Jerusalem. And all of this is imagery of God's temple. So the point then is, Jesus has come, he has established his temple because he rose again the third day. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He then establishes his church to be the continuance of his temple as we are co-heirs of Jesus. And we'll look at that a little bit more in detail next week. 
And then he establishes, ultimately, the final consummation of this is the New Jerusalem. But the New Jerusalem fills the entire earth. And the New Jerusalem is a temple that's described in language fitting the Garden of Eden. Thus, the stone that became a great mountain, and it filled the earth. So as we go to the Gospels now, here's, what we, here's, here's one last thing, and that's this. The Jews of Jesus' day thought that when the Messiah came, he would fulfill Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Notice the high priest says, Is it true that you're going to establish a kingdom or a temple made without human hands? That was the accusation. And the high priest's question is, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, Yes, I'm the Messiah. And he quotes Daniel 7. The Jews of his day thought the Messiah would come and establish the divine kingdom of Daniel chapter 2. And that's why the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? Are you really going to establish this kingdom made without human hands? But for them, they thought that the kingdom of Daniel chapter 2 would destroy all the kingdoms of this world. And they were looking for the Messiah to destroy Rome. And Jesus was saying, I'm not here to destroy Rome. In fact, I'm here to bring the Gentiles into this kingdom. And they couldn't figure it out. Well, the answer is this. The answer is, Jesus' message was, I'm here to destroy the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. And the ruler of the kingdoms of this world is Satan. It's the devil and his kingdom, and that's your enemy. And if you read the Gospel of Mark carefully, you'll notice that is the message of Jesus. I'm not here to destroy Rome. I'm here to destroy the devil. Because he's your adversary. And he rules over the kings of this earth. So we see that Jesus has already defeated the devil by his first coming. And in his second coming, he will totally lay siege to all the kings of this world. Thus the stone has already come. The stone has already established his kingdom, and the stone has already crushed all the kings of this world. All right? And let's look at this, in fact. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, Jesus says, I said one more point, and I'm making like three more, ain't I? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, Jesus says to the disciples and to others, he said, <clears throat> verse 18 of Luke, chapter 10, he said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, and behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing, excuse me, nothing shall injure you. The kingdom that Jesus has defeated was the kingdom of the devil who rules over the kings of this earth and over the kings of the world. He wasn't going to destroy Rome and all the other kings of this world. He was going to defeat the devil. One last link. I say one last link, but I've already said that three or four times. Here we go. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And he said, let's see. Actually, let me go. I'm sorry. Let me go to Daniel 2. And then we'll, we'll draw the New Testament um, comparison to it. Daniel chapter 2. All right. And it says in verse 44. In those days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom 
will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. All right, now let's go to, to Matthew chapter 21. All right, Matthew chapter 21, not Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 21. We read this passage earlier. All right, after Jesus tells the parable of uh, the, the vineyard that we saw in Mark 12, same, same parable in Matthew 21, it says, verse, uh, uh, verse 40, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will, what will he do to those vine growers? And then he said, He will bring these wretches to a wretched end, and they will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers, who will repay them the proceeds at the proper season. And Jesus said, Did you not read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. It will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The same, the Greek word in Luke, Matthew 21, verse 44, for broken to pieces is the same word in the Greek text of Daniel chapter 2, verse 41. It will crush and put an end all these kingdoms. Now you say, well, well, wait a second, Daniel was written in Hebrew. I know. But the New Testament writers always are, almost always are looking at the Greek version of these books. And it's very clear, and we'll see this in chapter 7 when we get there, that the book of Revelation, for example, is understanding, um, is reading Daniel in light of the Greek text. All right, now, again, I went a little bit deep, a little bit, you know, we'll, we'll see how we did. But I'm going to review that and kind of remind us of these points here and, and go back to chapter 2 for a second at the beginning of next week. And then next week we'll look at, at Daniel chapters 3 and chapters 4 as well. So let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.